welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 4th of January 2021 and this is episode 189. Firstly, a happy new year to you all and I hope you had a good festive break. Uh, Now we are back to normal service. On today's podcast, I talk to historian Louise Bell about her research into the rehabilitation and treatment of limbless service personnel after the Great War. Louise spoke to me from her home in Scotland. Hi Louise, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in Great War? Firstly, thanks very much for having me. Um, I guess I'm an independent researcher based up in Scotland who works on limbless men during and after the First World War. Now, how I became interested in the Great War is a good question. I've been having to think about this one. I think I probably just fell into it initially. I did um, a lot of history of medicine when I was at university and undergrad there was quite a few war-related conflict related classes on that and um, I remember reading a sort of generic history of medicine book one day and must be doing work for one of those classes and I saw a line which said something like lots of men lost limbs in the war and I was like what? That that was it that was all there was in this book so obviously it was quite a generic book but after that I kind of became almost obsessed with finding out more about what happened to men who lost limbs so when I went back to uni to do my masters in health history I knew then that that's what I wanted to focus my dissertation on and ever since then that's it it's been limbless men in the Great War. I think one of the significant legacies of the First World War was there was a huge number of British men demobilised with life-altering injuries. And there's been some work done on this area, but the recent centuries kind of highlighted how much more needs to be done, um, especially compared to those who suffer from psychological impairments or those with facial injuries. The um, history of the limbless men is quite under-researched. So I think it is an important part of disability history and First World War history as a whole. So before we actually get into the war and its consequences, can you take us back to sort of the Edwardian period and what the sort of pre-war attitude was to physical disability and how this view maybe changed as a consequence of the Great War? Well, I could definitely talk about that a little bit in terms of context of men returning from war. Obviously you've got the South African War happening in this early um, part of that period and you do start to see then this the beginning of this sort of idea of providing help for men as a sort of compensation for their war duty. So men are returning from the South African War missing limbs naturally and you start to see a sort of stronger idea of providing artificial limbs for them and newspapers of that time note that prosthetic makers were very busy as a result of the South Africa war. So there's a sort of awareness happening around these limbless men which is what I'm going to focus on because that's what I know and as you move into the First World War there's sort of unprecedented numbers of men returning missing limbs or with other disabilities and a lot more sort of being done to help them by the time you move on to the First World War. I think it all kind of links back to what was semi in place before that with the South African war so you see a lot more obviously being done to provide artificial limbs in greater numbers than there had been previously and there is this idea that these men were doing their duty and their bodies got destroyed as a result of them doing their duty I think that pervades both there but again as you get into the interwar period after the First World War you do see a sort of desire to forget about what happened a bit more in that conflict um, and these men are a sort of constant reminder of what did happen especially with such obvious disabilities so I think attitudes start to change again once you get into the interwar period but I think the First World War is a sort of combination of what 
what was happening just before it began. So could you give us a, a, an idea of the scale of disability amongst veterans who lost limbs during the First World War? So around 41,000 British men returned missing one or more limbs. So if you kind of break that down, this kind of equals around 11,600 cases of lost arms and 29,400 cases of lost legs. And so what type of rehabilitation was available for these men during and after the war and how successful was it? So obviously this was a big problem for both the British government and health professionals at the time and they had to kind of come up with ideas with how to deal with it. So initially um, a big thing was that hospitals were set up to try and aid these increasing numbers of limbless men. Um, numerous convalescent homes were also set up, um, especially for those who were waiting for the fitting of artificial limbs. These were mainly set up in various stately homes and country mansions which were taken over for the duration of the conflict and after. But it was the opening of hospitals that were specifically to aid these limbless men were of great importance. So you do get various hospitals such as the Shepherds Bush Military Hospital in London which had wards just dedicated to that but it was the hospitals such as the Princess Louise Scottish Hospital for limbless sailors and soldiers at Erskine House and the Queen Mary Convalescent Auxiliary Hospital at Roehampton which has some of the greatest impact. They're also two of the most well-known that are still around today. And what was happening here was limb fitting was obviously happening on a much bigger scale but men were um, having to wait around for their stumps to heal properly which is quite a lengthy procedure. A lot of them might have had hurried amputations at the front and then were brought back. Reamputation might have had to happen um, and limbs were fitted especially for that man so he'd get a lot of measurements taken they would try on different ones to see how comfortable they were and once he'd done that he had to make sure that he could obviously use this brand new limb. So normally rehabilitation falls into two different strands. So you've got playing sport and games and you've got work and employment. Um, and playing sport was a big thing. I mean it was also a sort of normal society idea that a man could go out and play sport, play football etc. There's also the added bonus of fitness levels achieved through sport and there's also a social aspect of getting together with people and enjoying an activity like that. And many of these men had to remain in hospital for quite a long time. And um, So the chance to play sport was just a way of breaking up how boring life be on the ward as well. But sport was also a part of service life so it maintained fitness levels and forced discipline and allowed for this idea of being part of a team to grow so it was kind of harking back to this life that they were now having to give up as well and obviously it wasn't just for fun it also allowed them to practice using their new limbs and I've got a story of a man who liked to go and play golf and golf was actually encouraged because of the different terrain that you're on so obviously you've got the sand, you've got the grass different gradients and that was quite good for getting to use your new leg and also you've got workshops being erected on the grounds of these bigger hospitals in order to try and aid the men with finding employment and decent employment and um, once they'd left the wards and these weren't just intended as a forward looking scheme they were also to help the men again use up their spare time and actually do something useful this idea of usefulness does come up a lot when you're talking about this you didn't want the men just sitting around doing nothing they wanted them to be doing something so how successful were these um, employment schemes as part of the hospitals and what sort of obstacles did, did, did men face finding employment once they've left the hospital I guess I should say a little bit about what sort of things they were being trained up on as well just to give you an idea of what they might be going out to do in the wider world so I'll start with that first I mean they were trained in all sorts of tasks while they were in hospital and um, for example at Erskine you could do everything from shoemaking to hairdressing to gardening tailoring it feels really like you could do whatever you wanted and Roehampton there were at least 24 trades being taught there in, in various workshops again things like motor and electrical engineering accountancy typewriting and Roehampton was quite unique um, as they had employment bureaus set up so notices were posted throughout the institution advertising positions that were available for the men convalescing there and employers throughout the country 
country were very interested in hiring men who had been trained there, especially during the war as they weren't going to be called up to the front again, naturally. And they were also very hardworking and disciplined and they had been very well practised in their trades as well. Um, however, a lot of companies would employ men with sort of lesser disabilities, so not losing limbs, maybe they just lost a finger or something like that, to kind of meet their quota for employing the war maimed. You've also got the problem that returning men after the war are also looking for jobs and there's this whole other issue around those who'd always been disabled from birth or through an accident from work that wasn't war related but it tended to be that if they were if companies were going to employ disabled men it would be those from the war that would kind of get first pick out of the wider um, disabled society and um, which is interesting i've only noticed that recently that companies were employing as i said the, those with the lesser disabilities to kind of get around the we're still doing our bit but we're not necessarily employing a man with two lost legs and did was that i suppose i'm just thinking that once of all these guys left hospital and then they were on the job market obviously it, it was a depression or a slight depression yes. after the first world war did they did they suffer discrimination and did they find it harder to get employment compared to returning soldiers and maybe maybe women still in the workplace so definitely returning soldiers were obviously the able-bodied returning soldier was definitely going to get a job before a man who was disabled unfortunately i hate having to say that but that's how life was i mean we're talking about obviously there were all these things put in place to help the men but if you think about a lot of the activities they were doing things like basket weaving sort of almost like oh I can't think what the word is almost like nice handicraft type things a lot of them aren't necessarily proper trades if that makes sense so yeah I mean even thinking back just I've got a tangent now but again another thing that men were employed in I've not done a lot of work in this don't ask about it was things like diamond cutting because they wanted to have a big diamond industry in Britain apparently was the idea for this but obviously as you're saying we're in a recession they get the training but then the factories all have closed down because no one could afford to buy diamonds and no one could afford to really keep factories like that going at the time so you do see examples where it looks like they were heading towards a good career and then everything goes wrong because we are in the interwar period where obviously you're saying things aren't great economically so so that leads me on to my my next question it was what sort of statutory and charitable support was available for veterans after the war if they couldn't actually get employment so you do have the ministry of pensions that's probably one of the biggest things that was set up to help so that was set up in 1916 and essentially that was to handle payments for war veterans um, that had been injured or disabled and their dependents. But again, this is a scheme that depends on just how disabled you were deemed to be. And there is a sort of breakdown. You can, I can give you a few examples of sort of portion of pension you would get depending on what had actually happened to you. <laughs> so to get um, a 100% disability pension, um, you had to have lost two or more limbs or <clears throat> lost an arm and an eye, lost a leg and an eye. There's quite a lot happening with a 100% disability pension. Um, whereas if you had your um, leg amputated below the knee or lost your left arm below the elbow, you would get 50% disability pension. And right, it goes right down to 20%, which is the loss of two fingers on either hand. Um, so there is quite a bit of movement depending on what exactly had happened to you. And a lot of time men have to fight through that. Obviously with the disabilities that like losing your limbs, it's obvious that that was attributable to the war. But we do see a lot of men having to fight for um, sort of more hidden illnesses that might have been um, attribute to the war or made worse by the war service and things like that. Because I suppose at least with losing a limb it was a bit more obvious where you stood on that scale. So that's a big one but you've got sort of local and national things happening so an example that I've got for Scotland is the Harry Lauder Million Pound Fund for maimed men, Scottish um, soldiers and sailors and that was set up by the well-renowned Scottish singer and comedian um, as he had a great deal of sympathy and obviously support for those who had been significantly injured in the war so men could apply to that and um, to get
get some money to help them towards whatever it was needed help with. So there's a lot happening on all levels immediately during and after the war. And did the government um, develop any schemes to help disabled veterans? <clears throat> so obviously I've mentioned Ministry of Pensions, but another thing that happened was the King's National Role Scheme. This was set up in 1919 as a means of um, attempting to gain more employment for more disabled ex-servicemen. And this scheme essentially asked employers to sign up and it was their choice to do so. This was not mandatory at all and pledged to employ disabled ex-servicemen as 5% of their workforce. Many employers were encouraged by the advertising of the scheme as a means of helping those who had served country. They could also display um, a lovely crest um, and were given preferential consideration for government contracts. Um, And at the end of 1923, the Ministry of Labour reported that 28,051 firms were now enrolled in this scheme. However, as I said previously, a lot of the time they were employing men with lesser disabilities to kind of meet the quota for that. And how did veterans with disabilities view the provision of employment opportunities available to them? It really depended on the man themselves. Um, Some men were happy to learn a new trade, to be able to have something to occupy themselves with and distract from what was going on and kind of feel useful and contribute to the economy again. Um, I do have an example of, I'm allowed to say I've got a favourite limbless ex-serviceman. This man is mine. His name was Thomas Haley and he returned from the war in receipt of a 100% disability pension as he had both of his legs amputated above the knee. He actually had five inches left from his hip down of what had been his leg and he's quite a disgruntled man is probably the light way of putting it. I found a lot of um, letters and documents relating to him in the National Archive which obviously is quite exciting because you don't always get to hear the voice of people um, in the records there. And a particularly um, important quote from him I feel that sums up quite a lot of the men I think is he says but now when I am a maim and not fit for manual labour this country has no further use for us. Now in these letters he's trying to get a place to do training at Erskine which obviously mentioned one of the big hospitals up in Scotland. I can just tell you a bit about Kelly's journey from his time of becoming disabled. So initially he receives 12 months training in boot repairing um, under the instruction of Bailey McIntosh who is a bootmaker and an private employer. Um, essentially Thomas gets go there because it's so close to where he lived in Stirling um, because obviously he's struggling to get around, he doesn't have any legs left. However, even with doing this training, um, Thomas never manages to gain employment as a boot repairer and is actually advised that he was unfit for such work. And the only payment that Kelly's receiving during this time is his disability allowance, his pension. But he doesn't give up. I think that's quite a Scottish trait. I quite like how stubborn he is. Um, he turns his attention to opening his own business and this is a tobacconist and news agents in 1921. Um, he does fund some with his own money but he later receives a grant of £40 from the Harry Lauder fund that I mentioned. Um, again, this doesn't go very well for him and he has to give it up, but he does show a desire to still keep going with finding some form of employment, which brings us back to this letter where he wants to go and do basket making at Erskine. And it takes a while, but I have looked through the Erskine records and later in the 1920s he does manage to go, you can see him on the records at Erskine and he is undertaking basket making. That's where I lose his story, but you can see that he's had to do a lot to try and get some sort of training that works for him and get the help that he needs um, so it isn't all just I mean obviously it all sounds great everything that was put in place for them but that's not necessarily the reality for a lot of these men which sort of leads me to a question and, and your professional judgment as a historian how would you rate the provision of rehabilitation and support for limbless vet- veterans um, by the government and, and the charitable sector after the war I think again I think it depends on a lot of it will depend on a case by case basis but in general I think it's not bad. I think there's a lot of good ideas circulating at this time and I think 
definitely, especially the two main hospitals set up, Erskine and Roehampton, obviously they're both still around today. They've still continued to do great work with ex-servicemen and women. So I think there's a good legacy there, which means that they obviously were doing some sort of good work in the First World War and aftermath, I think. And sticking with those hospitals, I think the idea of fitting the limb, especially for that man, giving him the time to learn how to use it and trying to help with the various rehabilitation techniques, I think they are all mostly successful things. I mean, obviously you have your men who don't want to do anything, complain about having to use artificial limbs. There's a lot of variation with materials. They start to experiment with different materials to make it easier for the men, which I think, again, is a good thing that's happening. I think that's quite positive. They're not just always having to use cumbersome peg leg legs you are, or arms. You are getting um, sort of more advanced design. You're getting metal starts to come in, lighter metals like aluminium, etc., um, from sort of 1920s onwards. And I think you can see that sort of need to develop this came out of what happens men in the First World War. Um, and I think a lot of the employment schemes in Bureau are good ideas. They might not necessarily have meant sort of stable employment, but we are going into the sort of interwar period where things weren't great anyway, so no one really had stable employment. So I guess that's difficult to judge because of that as well. Maybe if the economy had been more stable, maybe we would have seen different results. But that's me kind of thinking off the hoof there as we're chatting at the same time. So finally, Louise, where can people find out more about your work? So if you go to the National Archives website and go to their blog section, I did write a lot of um, work while I was working there. Um, I also produced a book when I was working there as well, which is Images of the National Archives Armistice. It came out in 2018 with pen and sword, obviously in time for the centenary of Armistice. But there is a chapter on there on disability and goes into a bit more detail about things that I might have done today. But also if you follow me on Twitter at Lou Bell, um, I do tend to tweet quite a lot of work relating to this and I'm always happy to chat people as well if anyone wants to hit me up on there. Louise, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having me. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>